Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. The story of Tara Reid's evolving allegations against Joe Biden occupies an odd place within America's ongoing culture war. On one hand, Reid still has some defenders on the left, despite the inconsistencies in her story, and the fact that her accusations serve to discredit the Democratic presidential nominee. On the other hand, many conservatives, who often are skeptical in regard to the Me Too movement, still remain eager to promote Ms. Reed's claims for what many suspect to be partisan reasons. To cut through all this, Quillette commissioned veteran reporter Kathy Young to investigate Reed's allegations. Kathy's report, which appeared last week in Quillette under the headline, Terror Reed's Dubious Claims and Shifting Stories Show the Limits of Believe Women, took readers into fresh territory including previously unreported inconsistencies in Miss Reed's description of her ex-husband's behavior in the 1990s, inconsistencies that are similar to those that mark her shifting claims about Joe Biden. This week, Kathy spoke to me about her reporting on Tara Reed and about the evolution of the Me Too movement more generally. Here are excerpts from our conversation. So let me start a little bit with you, Kathy, your perspective, what you brought to the story. Laura McGann, who's an editor and a reporter at Vox, and who you quote quite extensively in the article, she describes herself as somebody who is explicitly a Me Too advocate, and she combines that with her journalism, which you praise. How would you describe your own approach? I don't think it's fair to say you're a Me Too enemy, certainly. I think of myself as a constructive critic, I guess, or, you know, I've sometimes called myself a dissident feminist. It's, you know, I mean, labels are uh, uh, pretty meaningless, really. But I mean, I certainly sympathize with, uh, you know, if the goal of Me Too is to bring attention to cases of, you know, actual abuse of power, Uh, As you recall, it started with the uh, exposure of Harvey Weinstein, who, you know, we can sort of quibble about specifics of certain cases. And now there are questions about whether some of uh, Ronan Farrow's reporting was accurate. But I mean, I think we can all agree that he's a bad egg, you know, who did terrible, terrible things to many people, uh, women and men, by the way, he, uh, there was a lot, and I actually wrote about this at the time, you know, there was a lot of, uh, interestingly enough, you know, prior to the, this uh, sort of Me Too explosion, there were a lot of things about uh, Harvey Weinstein that sort of, you know, cropped out in various reporting that really showed him to be a terrible bully. And, you know, somehow that just went unnoticed. Uh, There was a case of him uh, hitting a male reporter who asked him some sort of question that he didn't like. There, You know, so yeah, anyway, not to spend too much time on Harvey Weinstein, but yeah, I think we can all agree that there were these cases that needed to be exposed, uh, that were sort of surrounded by silence because they had to deal with um, very, very powerful people who, uh, you know, often use their position to, 
you know, conceal what they were doing, to sort of intimidate anyone who would expose them. Um, again, you know, Weinstein was one. I would say from what I've read of the Charlie Rose story, I think that was a totally legitimate um, you know, issue to go after. Um, you know, James Levine at the Metropolitan Opera, who, you know, my, I come from a family of musicians, and, you know, my mom and several people I know have said, yeah, you know, it was sort of an open secret for many years that, you know, he had a, you know, thing about underage, well, well, I think it was young men. I don't think too many people knew that it was specifically underage boys. But, I mean, certainly a lot of people knew that he was using his position to, um, you know, to, to sexually pressure, uh, you know, people. And I think that, again, I think it's a positive thing that these uh, things came to light. At the same time, I do think that from the beginning of Me Too, it's not really even something that developed, you know, later on. Um, I really don't think there was a great kind of interest in looking too closely at the specifics of, you know, whether every one of those stories was accurate, whether the, uh, you know, punishment fit the crime, so to speak, whether the uh, sort of total shunning was maybe disproportionate to what was being alleged. Uh, so, I mean, I think that from the very beginning, there was a great potential for overreach. And and I think, uh, you know, the, it's been, um, you know, three years now. And I think we've seen a number of cases in which it was sort of recognized ex post facto that, you know, maybe there was a real overreaction there. Um, I mean, if you look at what happened to Al Franken, for instance, uh, there, there was a piece by, um, by Jane Meyer in The New Yorker uh, that kind of looked closely at some of these charges. And this is, of course, after he was uh, drummed out of the U.S. Senate. And, uh, you know, and it really turns out that a lot of these things were completely blown out of proportion, like the, the, the original photo where he was, you know, posed with his hands over the, uh, the breasts of a, um, you know, of a fellow entertainer who was asleep. I mean, it was sort of like, again, the Meyer piece explained that that was basically sort of reenacting and he wasn't actually touching her. It was reenacting part of a skit that they had done. And anyway, there, I, I don't want to go too much into those details, but of course, it's kind of ironic that Jane Meyer, the same person who did that piece about Al Franken, also co-wrote with Roland Farrow a completely awful, uh, extremely thinly sourced piece about Brett Kavanaugh. And again, I don't want to get into all the details of, you know, what was alleged about Brett Kavanaugh. This is, of course, the Supreme Court justice who whose nomination was almost derailed by accusations of sexual assault and sexual harassment. Um, so I don't want to go into all of these details, but specifically that New Yorker piece, uh, you know, it still kind of boggles my mind that a reputable publication would run that because here was a woman who said that, you know, in 1982, when they were both students at Yale, you know, Brett Kavanaugh essentially like waved his penis at her during a dorm party when they were both extremely drunk. And she was sort of more or less out of it. And, you know, we don't know how much alcohol he consumed. And she said that she kind of, you know, brushed her hand against his penis in the process of sweating it away and was deeply traumatized by that. Uh, and, you know, I mean, 
again, first of all, is this really something that should be disqualifying for somebody for public office? You know, this is a drunken prank that you did, you know, when you were uh, when you were a student on campus. Uh, but secondly, also the article itself, I think, said that she wasn't initially sure this woman whether it was actually Brad Kavanaugh, which is, you know, not surprising considering that. She was very drunk. This was you know, almost 40 years ago. I don't think she knew him all that well. And it actually said that she came to the conclusion that it was him after six days of careful assessment. And I thought, yeah, you've really got to be kidding me. I mean, this is the story that we're going to run to, you know, sink somebody's career. This is ridiculous. And the other detail that just, again, kind of blew my mind was that uh, there was a person who, there was a, f- a former classmate who said that he was quite certain that he had heard the story from another classmate uh, who d- definitely remembered, who saw this and remembered that it was Brett Kavanaugh. And then they actually said that when they contacted this other person, you know, who this other person had heard it from, I mean, this is getting to be this gossip mill, And the person who had supposedly seen it didn't remember any of this. This episode of the Quillette Podcast is brought to you by Magic Spoon Cereal, a high-protein, low-carb solution for people who love their cereal but also want to eat healthy. Like many of the people listening to this, I went through my low-carb phase a few years back, but I gave it up because I couldn't resist familiar foods, breakfast cereal in particular. And that's where Magic Spoon comes in. Magic Spoon isn't literally magic, like Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings, but it is magic in the idiomatic sense. How else to describe a delicious and satisfying breakfast cereal that contains zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only 3 net grams of carbs in each serving? Like you, I was skeptical, which is why I insisted on trying Magic Spoon before recording this ad. I also served it to my wife and daughters, who enjoyed it as much as I did, and are pestering me to get more, in fact. After tasting the whole product line, I can attest that the fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors are delicious. Magic Spoon also comes in cocoa flavor. I'm also supposed to emphasize that, as well as being low-carb, Magic Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and GMO-free. And that's all true, no doubt, but the magic thing about this product, the reason it makes the magic happen in your cereal bowl, as it were, is that it achieves all this without tasting like something you might find in a health food store medicine cabinet. If you want to experience some of the same magic, go to magicspoon.com slash quillette to grab a variety pack. And be sure to use our promo code quillette with two L's and two T's at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by what they call a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash quillette and use the code quillette for free shipping. Thanks to Magic Spoon for their sponsorship. And now back to our podcast. When you wrote your piece for Quillette about Tara Reid, you were quite careful to say that you can't, at least at the time you wrote it, you couldn't disprove the truth of her allegations, that there were a lot of holes in Tara Reid's story, the story itself had changed, uh, but you were quite careful to say, look, it's, it could be true. I think at one point, those were your words, look, could be true. Since your piece appeared in Quillette, a couple of things have happened. Uh, it's been shown that 
Tara Reid misrepresented her college records. And also, and this, I guess this should not be taken as proving anything, but her own lawyer dumped her. But the school records thing in particular seems to have turned the tide for some of the few remaining defenders that Tara Reid had. Does there come a time when you can definitively say, look, these accusations just, they're not true? And, and if so, have we reached that point with Tara Reid? Or, or do you still think that it's possible that she was telling the truth in regard to Joe Biden? say, you know, at this point, I'm like 99.9% sure that this did not happen. And let me tell you why. Uh, I thought from the very beginning, like when this allegation was made, and, you know, I listened to the Katie Halper podcast, and I think, you know, uh, it's very difficult when you listen to somebody uh, tell the story of being sexually assaulted and tell it in a very sort of emotional way. You really don't want to say, oh, you know, wait, maybe this person is lying, because I think it's sort of a natural instinct in that situation to, you know, be sympathetic and to say, oh, my God, you know, it's really terrible that this happened to you. And I think, you know, that's that is a totally understandable reaction. But, you know, when you start kind of breaking down the facts and when I reread the transcript of that Katie Halper interview, uh, the thing that leaped out at me right away. Sorry, I'm just going to stop you there because that's the interview. I believe it was in March when Reed first made that allegation, which I don't think she'd ever made publicly before, that not only had she been harassed and complimented and touched, but that she'd been full on, like it was pretty graphic description of sexual abuse in the hallways of power. Right, right. She claimed that, uh, and of course, previously, as you said, she had claimed a year earlier that she had been uncomfortable about, you know, the way that Joe Biden has sort of touched her neck and shoulders. And I think we can all believe that because, you know, we've actually seen him do this stuff on camera. And, you know, I don't think, that, I mean, most of the women who have complained about this have very clearly said, you know, they didn't think it was sexual. There are women who've received sort of similar attentions from him who said they were fine with it and that they, they, he, they felt, you know, he was being supportive in a, in a stressful situation. Uh, or, you know, so, yeah, I don't think it's sexual, but I, th- I think we can totally understand that some people may be uh, uneasy with that and may, you know, not feel great about it. So that was our initial story a year ago. And then she comes back in at the end of March and she goes on this uh, podcast of um, Katie Halper, who is a sort of progressive podcaster who's a, you know, I guess we should mention as a strong Bernie Sanders supporter. And Tara Reid goes on the show and tells a really, you know, on the face of a compelling story where she was uh, um, asked to to, uh, sort of catch up with Biden on the way from his office to Capitol Hill and bring him a gym bag for when he was going to use the congressional gym later. And supposedly when she catches up with him in the hallway, he sort of pulls her to the side and um, very abruptly, and she was very clear about this, that this, it wasn't really sort of this quote-unquote normal sexual advance. It was just this lunge where suddenly she finds herself pinned against the wall and, you know, he's kissing her on the mouth while, you know, getting his hand under the skirt and uh, uh, penetrating her with his finger. And, uh, you know, then when she uh, sort of pushed him away, he uh, supposedly became very angry and, you know, pointed his finger at her and said, you're nothing to me, nothing. And she said that that was really, in a way, the worst part, the, the, the being demeaned, you know, the way she was. And uh, it was, again, you know, she told it very emotionally. It's 
on the face of it, you know, a, a compelling story. And um, when you start kind of looking at the details, the first thing that really leaped out at me is the location. I, and oh, and the thing that was especially interesting was that she actually said that when she first spotted him, when she was coming up to him, he was talking to another person. And I thought, okay, so he, this is a public location where he was just standing talking to somebody else. It's a hallway uh, that leads from the Senate office building, you know, where the senators have their offices, to Capitol Hill. So there's going to be a lot of people there. You know, there's going to be, you know, congressional aides. There's going to be all sorts of stuff. I mean, this is really not a place where you can be assured of, you know, even like a modicum of privacy. And... Um, you know, uh, th that was the thing that first struck me as really suspicious about this. And he, uh, according to Tara Reid, you know, he sort of pulled her to, to the side or something. And, and I thought, you know, what does that mean? And I actually emailed, um, I couldn't get a hold of Tara Reid, but I emailed uh, Ryan Grimm, who's a reporter with The Intercept, who had covered the story. And I said, you know, I just want to clarify this. Is Tara Reid saying that... Uh, you know, she was uh, sexually assaulted in, in a public space, in a hallway. And uh, and Ryan Grimm wrote back to me saying, well, you know, it's my understanding that it was sort of a side area that was uh, like semi-secluded. And I put, I believe I put that in the first piece that I wrote about this for Art Digital. And then I heard from a couple of people who had been, who, who had worked on Capitol Hill, who had been, you know, congressional staffers, and they said, you know, there are no such areas in that in in that building. Like the, the those hallways, like they don't have alcoves. They don't have like secluded spaces where you could be like even remotely assured that you wouldn't be seen by other people. So that was really the first thing that made me suspicious. And there were all sorts of other things that were kind of red flags for me, like uh, the fact, for instance, that Tara Reid said repeatedly that, well, you know, at the time, we didn't really talk about sexual harassment. We didn't really have a name for this thing. And that sounded to me like she was sort of playing to the stereotype of the bad old days, you know, before me too, you know, before we began to talk about those things openly. Uh, and it's a completely inaccurate representation of that era, because actually that was sort of, you know, the first wave of Me Too, in a way. In 1991 was when Anita Hill uh, testified about the sexual harassment at the confirmation hearings for Clarence Thomas. And, you know, there was, um, we didn't have social media at the time, but, you know, we had the regular media. There, there was this wave of articles by women talking about the, the sexual harassment that they had experienced. There was, uh, um, you know, there were a lot of first-person accounts. There were there was a lot of media attention in nineteen ninety in late nineteen ninety two. There were like thirteen women who came forward with accusation of sexual harassment by Bob Packwood, who was a moderate Republican senator, and interestingly, kind of like Joe Biden, a, a big champion of women's rights. He was a pro-choice Republican, uh, and you know the, there were like thirteen women who came out with those stories of being, uh, and you know none of them, by the way, alleged anything as extreme as what Tara Reid alleged about Joe Biden. But I think mostly that they did allege like forcible kissing, and I think. 
think there were there were some groping allegations, and uh, there there were congressional hearings. Uh, you know, around that time, there were I think eventually I think there were like twenty seven women uh, who came out with Packwood stories, and this all would have been like around at the time that this allegedly happened. So to say that. Like, oh, well, I didn't even really call it sexual harassment because we didn't uh, use that, that language at the time. That really just immediately tells me that, you know, she's sort of playing to this modern audience of, you know, young people who, you know, like young Bernie Sanders supporters for whom, like, you know, everything prior to, I don't know, like 2010 is uh, the Dark Ages. <laughs> Ancient history. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so uh, that was kind of a red flag. And there were a lot of these other little things, like one moment, um uh, she was saying that, you know, she was really shattered by this uh, attack because, you know, Joe Biden had been her women's rights hero. And, you know, she had thought of him as this kind of, you know, feminist knight in shining armor. And, uh, you know, it was just really devastating when he turned out to be a sexual abuser. And then the next moment is she was saying that, uh, you know, she was really uh, kind of, you know, put off by the way that Joe Biden treated Anita Hill when she tested which was in 1991. So there were a lot of these. And, you know, just to be clear, you know, I'm certainly not saying that, uh, you know, a, a genuine sexual assault victim would have a completely non-contradictory account. I mean, I totally understand that, you know, when you're traumatized and even when you're not traumatized, you know, people may feel a lot of contradictory things. You know, people may have, you know, conflicting emotions about someone. Uh, but it's just, uh, you know, the, the specific way in which those contradictions kind of manifested themselves. Because it's not even like she said, I had a lot of mixed feelings about Joe Biden. And, you know, it, it's more like one moment she was saying one thing, the next moment it was like something completely different. So those were kind of, again, there, there were a lot of little red flags. But the thing that was really interesting to me, and this ended up, uh, sort of being the centerpiece in a way of my Quillette article, uh, which it originally wasn't really going to be, because remember we we're talking about originally focusing on that bizarre piece by Linda Hirschman in the New York Times, which basically said, you know, yeah, I think Joe Biden is a rapist, but I'm going to vote for him anyway, and I urge you to vote for him. Remember, like, that, that's what we were originally talking about, because that was just such a crazy piece. And, you know, and that was going to be my original focus. And then, you know, while I was working on the story and you know, kind of delving into some of the other, you know, aspects of, well, you know, should we, because Linda Hirschman's argument essentially was that, yeah, like Tara Reid is very believable and, you know, it's sort of, you know, anti-woman to suggest that, you know, she's not credible. Um, and as I started delving into some of this, uh, there was this, uh, aspect of the story where, uh, there was a document that surfaced from Tara Reid's, uh, divorce papers. Uh, she, um, was divorced from her husband in California in 1996. And it turned out, and this originally surfaced as something that was supposed to be corroborating evidence for her claims about Biden, uh, that in the divorce documents, uh, there was a statement from her husband, which mentioned in passing that when they first met, 
like in what because he had also been a hill staffer in washington in 1993 and he mentioned that when they first met she confided in him that she was having problems with sexual harassment in senator joe biden's office and you know and, and i thought at the time i didn't think it was that corroborative because she didn't even say that she was being harassed by joe biden it could have been you know there were a lot of people working in joe biden's office so you know but the thing that was interesting there were a couple of things that were mentioned in the um articles about this document that i noticed were kind of very dramatically at odds with a piece that Tara Reid had written in 2009 for a feminist website. And the, the reason, by the way, that that piece originally came to light was that it had this sort of passing mention of her work for Joe Biden in the context of praising him uh, for you know spearheading uh, legislation dealing with domestic abuse. Uh, and that piece talked about her experience, again, written in 2009, um, under a different name, uh, talking about her experience as a battered wife. And in that piece, she describes, first of all, she describes her ex-husband as this complete psychopath who's, you know, who has a history of killing pets and, you know, who told her when she was pregnant that, you know, you'd better have an abortion or if you have this baby, I'll just want to kill it because I can't stand, you know, helpless things, uh, who, uh, you know, repeatedly battered her starting like three months into their marriage and, um, you know, beat their child and made murder-suicide threats, you know, saying that if you try to leave, I'm going to, you know, kill you both and not kill myself. And, you know, allegedly, you know, according to this uh, narrative that she had in that piece, uh, he, uh, you know, one day ended up like choking her until she was unconscious in front of their screaming two-year-old child. And uh, the next day, uh, supposedly, you know, a co-worker saw her bruises, including like handprints on her neck and talked her into going to the district attorney's office. And, you know, that was sort of the beginning of her liberation. And then she also mentions uh, that, oh, by the way, you know, I later found out that the FBI was investigating my husband as a person of interest in the disappearances of two women because, you know, he fit the profile of a sociopath. Now, in the, and in the media coverage of the divorce files, first of all, the thing that kind of drew my attention at once is that they mentioned that it was the husband who actually filed for divorce and that the application for a restraining order that she filed was like a week after he filed for divorce. And then it was in his response to that application that he uh, made a reference to her, uh, you know, supposed experience of sexual harassment. And I thought, hmm, you know, I'm sort of wondering what else is in that divorce file. And uh, eventually I was able to get it from another journalist who had uh, worked on the story. And it turned out that you know, like her own allegations, we're not even talking about because this was one of those really, really messy divorces where, you know, both of the people, uh, you know, say a lot of terrible things about it. Well, and by the way, and he, he hit her at least once. Yes, yeah, there is, like, he pled guilty to one incident of domestic violence. So, yeah, I'm certainly not going to say that, you know, this is a situation where, you know, she falsely accused this poor innocent guy of, uh, you know, domestic violence. Now, he said that there was a lot of mutual violence that was going on. So, you know, I don't, uh, again, you know, I don't want to completely exonerate him, but 
you know, the point is that even if you look at her own account that she gave in applying for a restraining order, and this is not a situation where somebody is going to minimize the violence uh, that they're experiencing, you know, if they are actually like asking the court for first a, a temporary and then a permanent restraining order. Uh, there was like the, the 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 account that she gave at the time like pales completely compared to this narrative that she wrote like you know 13 years later for this feminist website like she alleged prior to like the, the this one incident where they uh you know they, they they had a confrontation in which she said that he you know slammed her against the wall you know hard enough that there were bruises on her shoulder and back and she also said that he punched her in the stomach so you know it's uh, i i don't know what specifically he admitted to I know that he pleaded guilty to assault, and that was later expunged after he completed um, uh, like domestic violence counseling. Uh, but there were no allegations of choking, and I actually spoke to an attorney who said, you know, if there if there was any choking, that's like automatically a felony, and it's certainly not something that would get expunged you know, after counseling because choking is really like treated very very seriously. So, but but again, she wasn't even alleging it. Uh, so it was this, and she said that prior to that, she mentioned one other instance in which she said he punched her in the arm during an argument. And, you know, he had a counter statement where he said like, yeah, like we've had, uh, there were times when I got physical and I regret it very much. You know, she has also repeatedly hit me, including in the face. So, you know, again, I don't want to sort out, you know, which one of them, uh, you know, was at fault in specific. But again, like she she wrote this narrative that was, you know, that was just wildly embellished to the point where I would say, you know, it's like 90 percent fabricated. Uh, there absolutely there is absolutely no indication that he was ever a suspect who was interviewed by the FBI about anything. He has no criminal record like other than that one expunged, you know, charge of domestic violence. Uh, there were no allegations ever of him, uh, like, I, I think later, like, after he was granted unsupervised visitation, she tried to accuse him of, uh, like, hitting the child. Prior to that, like, there were no allegations ever of him uh, beating the child, who was, I think, two and a half years old when they split up. Uh, there were, and, you know, I don't want get to get too much into, like, specific details, but part of it was like there were incidents that she would take like from the, the that appeared in uh, in the divorce papers that were just like incredibly inflated and like well let me let me let me stop you there because this gets us to something that it's interesting we talk about or at least we're encouraged to talk about mental health in every aspect of our society it's especially in recent years it wasn't always the case but in recent years there's been all sorts of public campaigns, get people to talk more about depression, uh, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. We're trying to eliminate the, the stigma. And, and also, a lot of these campaigns emphasize just how many people in our society uh, are afflicted with these. And this is important because when you read through a lot of this information, it's clear that Tara Reid might not be mentally well in all respects, and she might actually believe some things that aren't true, perhaps including things involving Joe Biden. Do you think it's it's odd that the stigma against talking about mental health 
we're trying to fight that stigma. But it strikes me that in the case of accusations like this, it would be seen as offside. And maybe people listening to this are going to be mad at me for raising the possibility that Tara Reid is mentally unwell. And yet I, I feel like we're not being honest if we don't come to terms with the impression she gives, especially now the recent disclosures from the New York Times. Uh, I don't think she's a well person. Is that your impression? No, that's no, I would definitely agree with that. And, you know, I mean, I can understand people saying, well, you know, we really don't want to dismiss somebody's claims of sexual abuse, uh, you know, because they may be mentally ill. And I think, you know, one point that I've seen made, and I think it is a very valid point, is that certainly there are cases in which, you know, there are predators who you know, zero in on vulnerable victims and specifically perhaps, you know, in some cases, people who have mental or emotional disorders and who may, you know, be more vulnerable to, you know, coercion than other people. And not just that, when they do report what happened, people people won't believe them because... Because, of course, you know, people, a person with known, like, mental or emotional disorders are going to be less credible when uh, when they report it. So, you know, I, I do want to be very careful about, you know, not saying, oh, well, we should discount this person's allegation because, you know, they're mentally ill. Um, and also I haven't, you know, I, uh, I, I don't know that there is any mental health diagnosis specifically with regard to Tara Reid. Um, there was uh, actually as part of the divorce file, there was a mental health evaluation of both her and her ex-husband uh there's only like i don't know why but there i mean possibly for privacy reasons there are only like little snippets from that in the uh in the files that are that were made available to some reporters um but yeah i mean i would say that it, it seems very likely that she does have mental health issues um the thing that uh i mean the, the reason that i thought the uh the like her account like her varying accounts of her experience of domestic violence were relevant is that i thought there was kind of a similar pattern there where she initially makes allegations of, you know, both with Biden and with her ex. She initially makes allegations of, like, sort of fairly low-level, you know, bad behavior. Uh, and then she comes back at a later time and just turns this into an incredibly lurid and melodramatic account, and it sort of grows more melodramatic and more grotesque with each retelling. And I think that is something that uh, I, I think really is quite relevant to whether or not we should believe her allegations about Joe Biden. And I, I think that's, um, and, you know, again, I don't want to diagnose somebody in absentia. I mean, I think that she is uh, somebody who would probably benefit from, um, uh, you know, from some uh, mental health um, intervention. Um, but, you know, I also think that she, uh, you know, she actually does strike me as a very, very toxic person. Uh, just, you know, seeing what we've seen. I mean, there's also a bunch of people by now who have said that she sort of manipulated them and used them in various ways and sort of defrauded them of money. A short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. 
By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text, and all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states. And you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. In her piece for Vox, Laura McGann, she distinguishes between when a source comes to you alleging a Me Too complaint for public consumption or when it's just a friend who comes to you. And, and she talks about how if a friend comes to you with a story of, of being abused or whatnot, she suggests you should be more unconditional in your support. Do you make that distinction? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that I would certainly be... Um, I mean, my first reaction probably wouldn't be, well, you know, let's see how we can verify this, unless this person said that they were planning to seek some sort of legal recourse. Um, I mean, I do think that your first reaction should be, you know, to offer moral support, you know, to offer sympathy. Um, And if it was somebody who was making an allegation that I thought was kind of transparently on its face extremely unlikely i would probably like try to nudge them in the direction of you know are you sure this is really what happened you know are you sure there isn't another side to this like you know let's say if it was somebody who maybe wasn't about like telling a complete fabrication but let's say they were telling a story of being sexually harassed by somebody in a professional setting where, like, I had reason to believe that maybe it was a much more sort of consensual, like, two-way flirtation than, you know, they were currently, uh, you know, making it out to be. I think I would probably try, like, as delicately as I could to maybe nudge them in the direction of, you know, like, are you sure that it was completely, you know, one-sided and unconsensual, uh, because I don't think it's helpful for people to, uh, you know, reframe those experiences as ones of victimization. Um, I mean, I think that if you were doing that with a friend, I think you would have to be very, uh, you know, careful and, you know, tactful about it. And I mean, you know, if you felt that your friend was publicly, you know, accusing someone of something they hadn't done, I guess there could come a point where you would feel that, you know, you have to choose between the friendship and, you know, what you believe to be true and, uh, you know, your your own integrity. Um, I mean, it's a very, uh, very, very tough situation. I mean, it's, I, I actually think there's a kind of similarity in, because I, you know, as somebody who writes about, 
um, you know, me too, overreaching false accusations and that sort of thing. I also get stories from, you know, usually men uh, saying that they were wrongly accused. And I'm sort of, you know, I think it's it's in some ways a very similar position where some of the, sometimes like somebody comes to you with a story saying, oh, you know, I've just, you know, my life has been destroyed by this, you know, false accusation. And, you know, your first instinct also is to be sympathetic and to say, oh, my God, that's really terrible. But obviously, if you're approaching it as a journalist and if you're going to write about this, I think you definitely have to look into, you know, whether what they're saying is actually true. And I mean, I've had people come to me with stories where I either couldn't verify what they were saying or, you know, even worse, like when I dug into it a little bit, it turned out that, uh, uh, you know, that they were really not unfairly accused. Um, um, I mean, you know, like, the, 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 my, my favorite sort of story, and I think I, I do have a fairly good, you know, after looking into these types of stories for you know, more than two decades, I think I have a pretty good kind of instinct uh, for these things, if I may say so myself. I, I, at one point, this guy sent me, uh, sent me a letter, and this was actually before, I think before emails, but I got a letter from this guy saying, you know, you 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 really got to write about my case, like it's a complete travesty. And I got like ten years in prison for sending a woman a bouquet of flowers after she got a restraining order. And I thought, you know, that really doesn't like ring true to me. Anyway, so to make a long story short, I looked into the story and I actually managed to find some media reports about it. And yeah, it turned out that like the week after or the week before he sent this woman the bouquet of flowers, he basically like tried to hit her with his car. And you know, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, like there are things that should definitely like set off your your bullshit detector. So, I mean, yeah, so people will tell you stories, whether it's stories of being uh, sexually abused or it's stories of being falsely accused of sexual abuse. Where, you know, it's totally understandable that when you hear the story and the person sounds compelling, uh, your first response probably should be, you know, yeah, that's terrible and I really sympathize. But again, like if you if you're going to write about it, if you're going to publicly support them, um, I really think that, you know, you have an obligation to at least to do some sort of due diligence and to you know, make sure that you're not supporting something that is false. Kathy Young, thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast and for writing for the Quillette website. Thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.